All right, welcome TLC, welcome family. It's good to see you guys. We are, if you've been tracking with us for this past month, we are in a series called Foundations, Foundation. And this series, just by way of introduction, was born out of observing the Christian community the last year in 2020. We had a lot of great things that happened within the Christian community in the year 2020, but we also saw a lot of really disruptive things that happened within the Christian community. We saw a lot of walls, whether they were emotional, spiritual, mental, intellectual walls that were being built around the communities, isolating people and really creating this um, exclusiveness from other voices and other um, thought processes, right? And we, and we saw the, the division and the, just the vitriol and the hate that was kind of being spewed up online, all of these things, and we wondered why. We wonder why that brothers and sisters who bear the name of Christ would have these, 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 this anger and this hate sometimes in, in, the, in our hearts. And so what we realized was that it's probably because we've lost our foundation. It's probably because we misplaced our foundation and we got caught up into the narrative of the culture around us. And so that's why 2021 is a year, we call it a year uh, beyond the wall, a year of restoration. We want to re- restore relationship. We want to restore biblical truth. We want to restore the heart of the Christian message to the world around us and within ourselves as well, you know. And we've covered a lot of topics. We cover a topic like, for example, um, that the human spirit needs a soul or needs a God that is big enough to answer its most fundamental needs, like answers about justice, answers about passion or vision, answers about love, answers about beauty, answers about suffering. You need a God, a truth that can actually be consistent to what you see in the reality of your life about suffering and how to navigate that. And what we saw was in Christianity, there's a resource in Jesus that allows for that, a resource in Jesus that is consistent to help answer life's biggest and hardest questions, right? We also saw that this God can be found, that he's not some far-off God, but that he is a, is a personal God who is creating disruption all over your life constantly so that you would find him, so that you would look for him, so that you would turn aside from your day-to-day life and actually encounter him. And we talked about how the biblical doctrine of sin is the answer to why humanity does what it does in its evilest ways. Why the hate, the anger, the bitterness, the self-centeredness is there, right? It's the biblical doctrine of sin, that we all, we all do not trust that God is for us, and that we all in ourselves, our nature seeks to be self-centered for our own personal glory, okay? But out of all those things, out of all those things, the one thing I believe that got a lot of Christians building these walls and building these, 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 um, these isolation and breaking people apart from one another, really dividing relationship. The one thing I think that we have lost in our foundation, right, is the biblical truth of the Bible, right, is that Christians have lacked or forgotten or trust in the truth of the Bible. See, a lot of us would say, and there's a growing group of progressive Christians 
out there. And progressive Christians, if you guys don't know what that is, is a group of people who believe that Christianity is outdated and therefore needs to progress. It needs to evolve in light of all the stuff that we have been seeing and understanding now. Right? All this stuff that's happening in nowadays, there's a new revelation, and so Christianity is too outdated and needs to evolve in order to uh, keep up with the changing times. Okay? And so what we see, whether it's progressive Christians, agnostic, atheists, or secular, people would say there's a lot of good things in the Bible, but there are some things we can't accept anymore. There are some things that uh, are good, but they're obsolete and they're out of date. And we need to progress forward and not stay backwards. Does this sound familiar? Right? Does this sound familiar for a lot of you guys? Maybe some of you guys have been saying this yourself, right? See, a progressive Christian or atheist or agnostic or a secular person would say, you know, there are things in the Bible that needs correction. There's a lot of good things in the Bible. We'll give you that, but the new insights that we have nowadays, the way in which we as a culture and as a narrative have evolved nowadays, we need something new to help us determine, right, how to interpret the Bible. The Bible doesn't apply to us anymore. It needs to be updated, okay? Therefore, this. Therefore, I can look at the Bible, say that it's good, but the Bible will not be my final word. The Bible will not be the final word in what I choose to believe and how I choose to live, okay? That's the, that's the common objection that we have when it comes to the Word of God. And so what we see as a progression or as a, um, as a result of that mindset is we see a generation of brothers and sisters, of friends and family, updating their Christian faith in such a way where it creates walls and isolates people and creates these mental emotional, intellectual walls that divides rather than unite, right? What I'm going to try to share with you today is this. It's very simple. I'm going to share with you that the Bible is the final word, that the Bible is the final word on how we should live and what we should do, that the Bible in itself is the solution and the final say in all things, right? And you're thinking, where are you going to get that from? And it's from the book of Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews asks this very same question that's been asked around. Is it, are there things in the Bible that are obsolete nowadays? The book of Hebrews asks that question. And we're going to see how the author of Hebrew answers this. And as he answers it, I want to share with you guys how you can trust, one, that the Bible is the final word of God. Two, how that word can actually create in you a new and transforming life in relationship to God, where you are not stagnant, where you are not outdated, where you are not held back, where you are not old school, whether you, that you are not archaic, but that it has a dynamic power to change your living relationship with God, all because of Jesus. So those are my three points in one sentence, okay? One, that the Bible is the final word of God. Two, it has the power to give us a new dynamic relationship. And three, because of Jesus because of Jesus. So let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you are at home and you're thinking like, should I take no say? The answer is yes, because I'm going to share with you guys some objection of today's modern conversation of why the Bible is outdated. I'm going to try to give you guys an answer to show you how it's not, how the Bible is ultimately the final word still. 
has always been and will always be because the Bible is timeless in its truth. It is timeless in its spread. It is eternal in the way it speaks to every age and every generation. So if you're paying attention, hold on, okay, because it's going to be good for you, right? And my hope is that you would leave this service looking at this book that you have on your, in your bathroom, in your countertop, in your coffee table, wherever it is that you leave your Bible, that you will look at this Bible and you would say, this is God's final word to me. I can trust it. I can be sure it's God's word. And I can live my life holding on to this word, knowing that he is speaking to me right now and forever. Go to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let me read those four verses with you. And we're going to break it down a little bit, Okay. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Check this out. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And we go to chapter 4. Let me read one verse here. Chapter 4, verse 12. This is what he says here. Chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. All right? The Bible is the final word of God. It is not outdated. It does not need to be updated. It is the final word of God. Now, how does these four verses show us that? How does these four verses in the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, how does it show us this? Okay, Look at verse 1 to 2. Look at the way uh, it starts off the, the conversation, the, uh, the Hebrew writer. He's, he's telling us that God spoke. Check this out, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, to the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So off the bat, what do we have? We have a God that speaks. We have a God that is not impersonal, but a personal God who is using words to speak to us. He is not an impersonal force where we just kind of get this impulse or this feeling from him once every full moon, but he is an actual personal God who speaks, who communicates himself to us in words, right? As beautiful as the sunset is, as amazing as the light of dawn is, as wonderful as the midnight sky with the dazzling stars are, those things do not come into comparison with a personal relationship. You can feel, you can feel a lot of great things by staring at those things, but a real relationship, a real personal touch, right, comes with what? Words. It comes with words. Okay? God is a personal God who enters into relationship with us by doing what? By speaking to us. He speaks to us. Now, check this out. This is how it goes in further here, why God, the word of God is the final word. It says this, that we are told in these first, uh, verse, uh, two verses is that Jesus Christ has given us his final word. That in Jesus, God has given us his final word. Verse 1, it says what? In the past, God has God spoken. God speaks, right? He spoke to our forefathers, past tense, okay? 
But now, he has spoken. You know what the, the tense is for has spoken? It's a verb tense. It's, perfect, it's, a, it's a perfect tense, which means like, I have spoken. Right? That's perfect tense. He has spoken. Perfect tense, which means it's over. There's nothing else to be said. That is the finished line. God has spoken to us in Jesus. You know what that means? The author of Hebrew is telling you that Jesus is the final say of what God is going to share with us. He is the final word in what he's going to share with us. Because in the Old Testament, the Bible says what? He's, uh, Hebrew says, God spoke through the prophets in many times in various ways. You know what that means? The word various ways? It means that he spoke to the prophets in pieces. Just little pieces here and there. What he spoke was true, but the Old Testament never got the full picture. See, the Old Testament prophets, they got the information, but it's all true, but they got it in pieces. They never saw the whole picture. But now, in the last days, which means the days that things are fulfilled, in the days when things are all completed, the author of Hebrews says what? God has spoken in Jesus. God has spoken in Jesus. Now we have the full picture of what God is saying through his son. Jesus Christ is the final word of God. Now, what does that mean? Look again. Look at verse 3 and 4. What is this? How is this? How was these verses again, again telling us that the Bible is God's final word? Look at verse 3 and 4. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for, um, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, the majesty in heaven. When a priest sits down, that means what? The work is done. You only remain standing if the work needs to be continued. So what the author of Hebrew is saying, Jesus sat down. It means that all things are complete. It is finished. The work is done. The final say has been declared. The word is the final say in this part. So pulling all these verses together, what do we see? Okay, what do we see? We see that Jesus Christ, he's the ultimate savior. He has ended the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, right, so that nothing can add to the salvation. You guys realize that? Jesus Christ dying on the cross, nothing can add to that. You can't you can't correct that. You can't progress from that. You can't add on to that. You can't update that. He is the final salvation, but the passage is also saying he is the final revelation. He is the final word of God, meaning that he has ended the revelation of former times. All the Old Testaments, when they gave pieces of information, no one saw the big picture. In Jesus now, at the story arc, at the end of it, you see the picture and you realize, oh, that's the story. Oh, that's the final say. Oh, that's the final revelation. God was trying to reveal himself all throughout time, all throughout history, and the author of Hebrews is saying, check this out. In Jesus, God finished his word. All right? His word is complete. Which means what? In that revelation of God through Jesus Christ, we have the completion of God's word about who he is, about who we are, and how we are supposed to live. That's what it means. That's what uh, Hebrews 1-4 through is telling us. In Jesus Christ, we have the full picture of who God is, who we are, and how we're supposed to go about living. That means you can't add anything else to it. 
That means you can't take away anything else from it. You can't improve on it. There's nothing to be corrected. Think about this. What philosophy can add on to the glory that's revealed in Jesus Christ? What, what cultural narrative can add more to what has been shown in Jesus Christ? What sage, what teacher can add more information to what we have in Jesus Christ? That's what Hebrew is saying. Hebrew is declaring off the bat, unequivocally, unapologetically, the word of God in Jesus Christ is the final say. And who he is, who we are, and how we should live. So I know the moment I say that, you're still thinking, well, I don't, I don't agree, PT. I don't agree, right? I'm, I'm objecting, right? Because what about? You guys get that a lot, right? And, and the reason why you say that, you have that objection about, well, what about this? It's because you yourself probably have a lot of questions that comes to mind about the Old Testament and all that stuff. And on, and on top of that, you probably have a lot of people asking you a lot of questions about, well, what about this? What about that? Right? See, they'll, they'll probably, people will probably come to you and say, you know what, the Bible, the Bible seems very outdated. It seems like you're cherry-picking a lot of things. It seems like there are things that were done then but aren't done now. So things get updated. Things get progressed in the Bible. Right? Because we're not doing it what we used to do. And so that means that what? That means that we don't have to look at this word as the final say. That means that there are things that we can add on to it. There are things that we can progress to it. That's the argument. Right? So let me, let me share with you guys three objections that, uh, that I seem as pretty prevalent and try to, try to walk you guys through this. Because my, my first point is this. I want you to get this. Unequivocally, unapologetically, the Bible is the final say in who we are and who God is and how we should live in Jesus Christ. I want to share with you one of the objections, one of the objections, okay, is polygamy. Polygamy, right? Many wives. Have you guys heard of this one? People say, progressive Christians or even like, you know, atheists or agnostics, they'll say, check this out. Look, the Bible approves polygamy, but Christians don't have polygamy. We don't have many wives now. So what does that mean? That means we've updated, we've progressed in our culture, we've learned that polygamy is probably not a good thing as a Christian, we've gone beyond that. So if the Bible, so if, if Christian practice can go beyond polygamy, that means that what? We don't have to say this is the final word. Things can change all the time. The answer to that is this, very simple, take notes, right? Where in the Bible does it condone polygamy? Where in the Bible does it condone polygamy? Bro, PT, didn't you read Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? All those homeboys had a lot of wives, right? They had a lot of wives. You're right. It was recorded that they have a lot of wives. Abraham was recorded as being a cheater and a liar as well. Doesn't mean that we condone that, but check this out. In Genesis chapter 2, from the very beginning, God said what? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be cleaved to his wife. Singular. Not, he will be cleaved to many wives or as many wives as he can get, but he can be cleaved to his wife. Singular. The assumption is what? Is one wife. But here's the thing. The rest of the book, the rest of the book, if you're an honest reader of Genesis, you will know this. Okay? There is no way that you can read Genesis and think that the Bible condones polygamy because the life of all of those guys were miserable, right? They were miserable with many wives. If you read Genesis faithfully, you will see that the Bible tells you the opposite. Polygamy is not the way to go. 
Polygamy brings miserableness. You know, my wife always jokes with me, like, you know, you just, you just want to have all these other young ladies. I'm like, Mom, Mama, one wife is enough, right? It's enough for a whole lifetime. If you think I want a second one with this, mm-mm, one is enough, right? Genesis, if it tells you anything, does not condone polygamy. It tells you the opposite, polygamy. Polygamy leaves you miserable, right? It's the worst idea anyone can possibly come up with. And if you're a husband, you know this. You know this deeply, right? All right, fine. Polygamy, we'll we'll, we'll scratch it off. So it doesn't actually say condone polygamy. What about the dietary laws, right? The Bible says you can't eat shellfish. Man, if you are out there and you love lobsters, you pick and choose. It seems like you're picking and choosing what you get to eat and what you don't get to eat. What about the, the ceremonial laws, all the cleaning and the cleansing that you have to do? What about the apparel, right? You're not allowed to wear earrings. You got to put your hair a certain way. Like, what about that? You know, those laws are very clear in the Bible. Let me tell you this, okay? And because we no longer, because it's, it looks like Christians are cherry-picking these laws, right? Some laws you follow, some laws you don't. Some laws you're into, some laws you're not. You're cherry-picking these laws. You're being arbitrary about these laws. Therefore, what? Therefore, the Bible can be updated. You can progress in your Christianity. You can take away things and add things, right? That's the argument. But let me tell you this. The answer to that, the dietary laws, the apparels, the things you can and cannot touch, that's not arbitrary at all. There's nothing arbitrary when Christians don't do those things anymore, right? And it's all found where? In the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells you what? It tells you that God now in these days have written his word upon our hearts. He's quoting Jeremiah, which is the Old Testament. That God has written the moral law upon the hearts of man. So you don't pick and choose what you want. It's written here. It does not move. It does not change. But at the, at the same time, the author of Hebrews tells you this. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament and the clean laws that made you ceremonially clean to approach God, right? It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if you want to approach God, these laws is what you got to do to approach God. Now, let me tell you, is the law obsolete? No. If you want to approach God without Jesus, I'll show you how. The Old Testament laws. If right now at this moment you think that I can approach God without Jesus, I'll tell you, yeah, you probably can. But let me tell you how. There are dietary laws you have to follow. There are ceremonial laws you have to follow. And there are apparel laws you have to follow. And if you do these things perfectly, then you can approach God. So the laws aren't absolute. They're there. But the reason why Christians don't follow them is because why? They're fulfilled in Jesus. So yes, there are things. There are, there are things that as um, there are things in the Bible that Christians don't follow, but the Bible is the one that tells you what not to follow. We don't get to choose that. The Bible is the one that tells you what things are allowed to be followed now and no longer need to be followed. You don't get to choose what you want. You know why you don't get to choose what you want to follow and not follow? Because we change our minds all the time. 50, 60 years ago, if I knew my history correctly, we, we, were, we were, the evil of this country was communism and, and atheism. Because atheism was tied to communism, and so the, that was the evil force that needed to be fought and battled. Sixty years later, 
Atheism becomes the logical way to understand the world and is lauded and celebrated. And we see the movement of communism in the face of socialism coming back into our school systems, into our culture, into our day-to-day life. We see a change of what? A perspective. And let me tell you this, 50 years from now, when your kids are looking at you, they're going to be looking at you and thinking, these guys are outdated. So you get me? Because we change all the time. You have no perfect spot to say, this is obsolete. This is to be kept. You don't have a say in this. So yes, Christians, we do. There are things that Christians don't follow anymore, but it's because the Bible tells us, not because what we pick and choose arbitrarily ourselves. The Bible tells us what we can and cannot follow. All right? Those are dietary laws. Okay, fine. Okay? What about slavery? What about slavery? Now, for a fact, Old Testament and New Testament is all about slavery. There are slaves in both testaments. There are laws for these slaves, right? And we know that slavery is wrong. We know that slavery is no longer right. So that means what? The Bible needs to be updated. It needs to progress. It needs to change. It needs to be evolved. Answer. When you say the Bible condones slavery... What slavery are you thinking of? Are you thinking about the African slave trade? I'm 100% sure that's what you're thinking of, right? 100% sure that you're thinking about the African slave trade. Now, let me share with you some points about this. There's so many things I can share about this, but let me share with you some points as a, as a, for the sake of time. 1 Timothy 1.10 and Deuteronomy 24, New Testament and Old Testament, condemns unequivocally, unconditionally, just read it. Kidnapping and slave trading. It condemns it unapologetically, unequivocally, unequivocally, and unconditionally. So obviously when the Bible talks about slavery, it's not talking about the slavery that you and I know, about slave trading, kidnapping, right? But doesn't the Bible have slaves? Didn't the Old Testament Israel have slaves in them that they kept? Yeah, right? But let me tell you about this. Old Testament slavery, right, laws, is what we would call today the bankruptcy laws in our country. What does that mean? In those those days, if you fell into debt and couldn't pay your debt, right, you couldn't couldn't declare bankruptcy. You can say, oh, I'm bankrupt, guys, sorry, (laughs) right? You would have to do what? You would have to uh, work as an indentured servant to the person that you owe money to until the debt is paid off, right? So you... They don't own you, they own your means of production. You guys get me the difference, right? But let me give you three laws that surrounds the slave indentured servants, okay? It can never go longer than seven years. Did you know that? After seven years, all debt must be wiped off the chart, right? If you go bankrupt, if you have a debt that you cannot pay, if you owe a debt that you cannot pay, you have to sell your service to the person you owe it to, and that person, the Israelite, after seven years, has to declare your debt free. Let me tell you what this means. I have a humongous student loan, okay? If I think I'm never going to be able to pay it off, honestly. Like, let's just be honest here. I think Seth is going to pay it off for me. That's, that's what I'm betting on right now, okay? I'm not going to pay it off. But if you're telling me I can be a servant for seven years and then I get wiped clean, I will be a servant for seven years, 
right? I will be your servant for seven years. If that's all it takes, except the 30 plus years that I'm thinking I have to pay for it, I would do that, wouldn't you, right? It's not like the African slave trade at all. But here's the second part about that. You couldn't mistreat your slave or your servant. Exodus 21 verse 27, it says what? If you knock a tooth out of your servant's mouth, you have to let your servant go. Think about this. So not only in seven years will my debt be wiped clean, but if you happen to beat me and hurt me, my debt is clean already, please hit me, right? Make it over. I'll do it in six months, right? We'll be all done. But on top of that, the third thing is Deuteronomy 23 says this. If a slave runs away from their master you must not, and runs to you, you cannot send that slave back to their master. Does this sound like the African slave trade to you? Does this sound like what was happening in America back in the days when we are talking about slavery? No. When a slave runs away from the master, the benefit of the doubt goes to who? Goes to the slave. That the master must be doing something that forces the slave to run. So what I'm saying here is this. This is what I'm trying to get at, okay, guys? The Bible is the final word of God in Jesus. You cannot add to it. You cannot take away from it. It's not outdated. It's not archaic. It does not need correction or improvement. The Bible is not a set of rules. It is a story where you understand the beginning stuff of it based on the end of it, right? When you read a story arc, when you guys read all you authors, English majors out there, when you read a story, or you guys would love to read, when you read a story, right, the beginning part of the story might be so, sound confusing to you, but then when you get to the climatic end of it, you're like, oh, you look back on it, it's like, I get what all this is meant to be. So in the Bible, the climatic end is Jesus, the final say, the final word, and then you look back and you realize, oh, that's what this meant. That's what all this is for. Oh, the fulfillment, the completion, the completed work is in Jesus. In Jesus, we find out who God is, who we are, and how we're supposed to live in that relationship. Have you ever seen the movie Tenet? Um, yeah, right. Oh, that movie is, that movie, you want a mind trip? That's the movie you watch, okay? I remember watching the first hour and a half of it, and I was like, what is going on, right? I know it has something to do with time travel, I think, Right? Maybe not. I'm not even sure anymore, right? I'm watching it, and then towards the end of the movie, this reveal comes up. I'm like, oh, what? So I have to watch. I, I've never usually watched a movie twice, but I went back and I watched it again. I'm like, I still don't get most of it. But like, you know, like it's, but it makes more sense. Like, oh, that's why he did what he did. Oh, 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 that's who that guy was, right? And you start seeing all of it in light of what? The finale, You understand the old based on the revelation of the new. You guys follow me? Right? And so in the same way, what the author of Hebrew is saying to you, in the past, God revealed to the prophets various forms and pieces. Never the full story, but now in the final days, in the days of revelations, the days when things are fulfilled, God has shown us his last word in Jesus Christ. He is the height of the answer. He is the epitome of it. He is the climax of the story. He is everything. So what can you possibly add to Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God? 
What can you possibly add to what Jesus has to say when he is the revelation of God's word? What do you have to add and improve on when the improvement and the final word is God himself? And the answer is you cannot add, update, progress in any form what this word is saying. Okay, fine. God's word is the final revelation. But living in reality today, that doesn't seem like it can actually help me deal with the stuff I see around me. Right? PT, if you're telling me that God's word is the final revelation, the final word, the completed work of God, I still don't see how this can actually change my relationship, the way I deal with people, the way I deal with God, the way I interact with unbelievers or believers. I don't see how this dynamic relationship can happen just by acknowledging that this is the final word. And the reason why, listen, guys, the reason why, the reason why you think this way is because in your heart of hearts, you don't trust that this is the final word. You're not even sure that this is God's word speaking to you. Because the moment when you come to a place in your Christian life or in your life, when you have nothing, not that you have no words to turn, but when you look at this and you, real, and, you, and you begin to trust and realize and assure that this is God's word to you, then the transformation comes. Then revelation comes. Then a new dynamic relationship comes. You see, if you, if you think that your Christian walk needs to be progressed by impulses, by emotions, by changing of culture and times and feelings, let me tell you something. Feelings and all those things will, they're great, they're important, but they're also misleading, always misleading. I'll give you an example. When I was in, um, when I was in youth in the Korean church, there was a, there was a mom who, who's, uh, whose mom was passing away right, of cancer. And very faithful woman, very loving woman. But she, I mean, we didn't know if she was faithful, or she, but, but this is her, her, her answer. She said, God will heal my mom. She will not die of this cancer. God has shown me, he has given me the, the vision that he will heal my mom. And, you know, what are you going to say to that? Like, as an old adult, like, okay. Yeah, nah, right, right, whatever, you know. A couple months later, mom passes away. What happened there? She took a human emotion that's natural to want your mom not to die. I think that's a very natural emotion to have, yes, right? You don't want your mom to die. You, you want to see life in her. You want to see her continue her life. But you took that natural healing, human emotion, the, one, the thing that you want so much, and what she did was she deified it. She spiritualized it. She added God into that. And I think we do this a lot. God wants me to get into school. I'm going to get into school because God showed me. I'm going to marry so-and-so because God has put that person upon my heart. You know what's funny? When I was in um, seminary school, like we don't get a lot of female seminarians, right? You know, because I don't know why, right? She should. We don't get a lot of female seminarians. But whenever we get one who walks into a Bible class, all of a sudden, all the single brothers were like, I feel like the Lord has led me to you. And she was like, we must, I must have missed the call because I, I don't feel that at all. Like, 
you need to talk to him some more, right? I think God has, and you know, take a very human emotion, which is what? I'm lonely. I'm a seminarian. I'm going to be in debt forever. And here is a woman who actually loves God, who understands my, my forever debtness. Must be that God has brought her into my life, right? They took a human emotion and they deified it. They spiritualized it. Can I tell you something? It's only when you're most immature and young do you do something like that. When you take an impulse and a feeling and saying, God has told me this. Something that you will not know until later on. Something that you cannot possibly know until later on in your life. Right? If you base your relationship, your dynamic relationship with God only on the feeling of how you feel because the culture is speaking to you a certain way, or the impulses that you have because of something you personally really want in your heart, I'm telling you, mistakes happen. Feelings are very misleading. But what if you look at the Bible and say this, all of this is God's word. All of it is God's word. Not some of it, because if you say only some of it is God's word, then the other some, you're basing it on feelings again. I don't like that part because I don't feel that that's right. See, what if you approach the word of God, the final revelation of God, the final say of God revealed in Jesus Christ, what if you approached and said, everything in this is God's word, right? Everything in this is God's word. To have a relationship, you have to have words. It has, imagine this, okay? Imagine Feeling-wise, let's say I, I married my wife, Trisha, and for the past nine years, and all I've done for nine years is I, I don't say a single word to her, but I just hold her hands and just look at her. The first month would probably be kind of cute, maybe, right? But after a while, she'd be like, maybe you should say something, right? Because our relationship is not going to go anywhere if you don't say something. It's nice that you hold my hand. It's nice that you're looking at me adoringly. It's nice that I have this nice feeling of impulses here, but... No relationship can happen without words, right? To have a relationship, you have to exchange words. And not only exchange words, you have to be sure that on the other end of the words you're exchanging is God. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're being catfished. You guys know that term catfishing when you go online and you're, like, talking to somebody, but you have no idea if that person is who, who they say they are? You could be talking to a girl, but that person could be, like, an overweight, middle-aged man who's, you know, just pretending to be a woman to play with you or something. You have to be sure, before you even share your emotion, you got to be sure of who's on the other side. And my, my word to you is this, that if you approach this right here, as it tells you it is, that it is the final word of God, all of it, completed, does not need to be improved, does not need to be updated, does not need to be corrected. If you approach this as God's final word, you can have an unbelievable, dynamic, living relationship with God. But I know your question is still what? But how? How can this give me a dynamic relationship with God? Go to Hebrews 4.12. Let me read that to you guys real fast. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 
The Bible, Hebrew author says that the word of God is living. It's active. It's power. It's actually active and living. What does that mean? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus said, I mean, God said, in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. It did not say this. It did not say, in the beginning, said God said, let there be light, and then he went and got a couple things together, and he made light. Right? It didn't say that. It said, God said, let there be light, and that word brought light. You guys get me? See, when you and I speak, when you say, hey, I'm going to save the world, you would say it, but then you have to go out and actually do something to make that happen. You guys get me? But God, when he speaks, when his word speaks, Hebrew, the, the author of Hebrew is telling us that it is alive and active and that the very word in which he speaks, the fullness of that word, when it speaks to you and you trust it and you're sure that it's from God, it has a way to speak in and to you across the ages. Right? When God speaks, that word does the job. The word has power. It accomplishes what it says. And it has, and, and the way it's so powerful is because it speaks through the ages. It doesn't matter how old you were when you read it from the beginning or how old you were when you read it at the end. It has power to speak through the ages because it's timeless. It's timeless. I'll tell you what I mean by that, okay? All right, guilty pleasure, full disclosure, right? Your pastor in high school, he loved reading vampire novels, okay? I have all of Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I was like, who's that? Don't worry about it, okay? Anyways, I love the Vampire Chronicles because for a high school guy, it was very intriguing. The idea of immortality, the idea of power, the idea of personal seduction in a vampire's stigma, the idea of how the immortal life of a vampire sees humanity and sees the ups and downs and sees these things. I read those books as if it was gospel, I said, like, that's how you should love. That's how you should approach love. That's how you should approach humanity. That's how you should approach so-and-so. I saw those books, and because, I was, because I'm just in a weird state in life at that time, right, I looked at that and said, this is how it should be done at that time. I opened it up recently, and I, re- I was reading it again, and I was like, what in the world was I thinking? What, what, the, what in the living, like, what is wrong with me, right? Because I look at it now, and it's like, it was nice. Haha, <laughs> that's kind of cute, you know? You know why? Because that novel is just, it's not timeless. The word, that word is not a timeless word. It's stagnant and stuck. But yet, the Bible, the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 1, I remember reading it for the first time in the hospital waiting room uh, when my dad was in the coma when I was in eighth grade, going to eighth grade. And I remember reading. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And I remember my first thought as I was reading through that whole chapter was, this God is powerful. This God is pretty powerful and orderly. Is what my, I mean, I didn't know anything about it. I just, thought, I just that was my first thought. Twenty-something years later, as a pastor, reading this passage again, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And I read it again, and I said, this word... This word has power. What, meant, what, what, what it showed me back then has not changed to what it shows me now, but what it shows me now is even deeper than what I saw back then. That the word has power. That when God speaks, he doesn't have to step down and then start making things happen. He speaks, and that word itself 
conjures and, con- and, and, and creates reality. That word has power. That's why, that's why, church, every single time, no matter what, I've always, I've always encouraged you, don't miss service. Not because going to service is going to save you, but because at service, the word of God is preached. And when the word of God is preached, and when you sit there, and maybe you could be on vacation, maybe you could be having a bad day, maybe you could be going through some whatever emotions up and down, but when you are there and you are decided to yourself in your heart, I'm going to trust this word. I am sure that it's from God. In that moment, in that moment, that word has power in your life because that word brings transformation to your life. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you run a service faithfully, it has the power to bring conviction and salvation to those who are there. Going to service is not just a, a, a formality here, guys. Going to service it is the very power of God in your interpersonal disciplines to actually grow you, to move you, to change you, to have a new living dynamic relationship with God. See, I'm trying to tell you that if you would approach this word, and that you're sure that it's from God, that it is the final word, and you trust it. He speaks to you in it every time because the word itself is a living and active power in your life. One, the Bible in Jesus Christ is the final word of God. Two, That word has the ability to change your living dynamics forever. Forever, if you will step in and read it. But three, it's only complete because of who? It's only complete because of Jesus. It is not complete because you got a bunch of 66 authors who wrote it 4,000 years in in, in time, who's created this this storyline, this arc. It's not complete because of that. It's complete because of Jesus. What philosopher... Like I say again, what sage, what cultural narrative, what new information can surpass the revelation of God's glory in Jesus? What more can you add to what's already perfect? What more can you add to what's already glorious? What more can you add to what's already been done? What more can you add when the word says his job is finished and he sat? He is the final salvation. He is the final revelation. What more can you add? And it can only be seen and can be completed in Jesus Christ. You see, if you see the beauty of who Jesus is, check this out. If you see the beauty in who Jesus is, that he was pierced. For our transgression, Isaiah 53. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. If you understand that, that it is complete, it's complete because of Jesus. It's complete because of who Jesus is. When you understand that and you open the Bible and you read it and it begins to convict you, it begins to pierce you, it begins to crush you, you know that that crushing is not meant to kill you, it's meant to heal you. That the word of God becomes the healing power for your life. If you would trust it, if you would hold it, And if you are sure that this is God's final revelation to you. You see, we live in a world 
where we want to be critical, and it's our culture, to be critical of everything we see, hear, and read. We live in a time when the cultural narrative is question everything. And what we see as a result of that narrative is not more unity, but actually greater division. What we see because of that narrative is not more love, but what we see is you only love if you agree with me. And I'm, I'm not talking about just progressive Christians. I'm talking about conservative Christians as well. Some of you conservative Christians out there, you have not read your word, or at least you're not holding on to the word. You're holding on to some other theories in your life. Because if you were to hold this word as it is, as God's final word to you, your action, your words, your narrative should not be the way it's been. Both sides of the aisles. The word of God is living and active. And if you trust it, if you are sure of it, it has a power to transform your life. It has the power to transform your life. Some of us, you say, I don't really feel anything in transformation. Have you read it? When was the last time you read it? And I won't say last Sunday because, yeah, you barely read it. I read it for you, right? When was the last time you sat down and you said, oh, God, I will read your word. And what comes out of it, I will trust that it's from you, and I will follow it. For I know what? Because Jesus was pierced for my transgression, crushed for my iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds I am healed. So when I read this, it's not going to be to crush me. It's going to be to heal me. Let's pray.